you're tuning in to an episode from Adventure Emerge 2021, the number one entrepreneurship conference for students and researchers worldwide. This episode is brought to you by our event sponsors, Edinburgh Innovations and Vonage. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining. I'm here with three incredible panelists to talk about the future of education, which is such an exciting topic for me and I know for many of you here today. Um, we do have a really cool host as well, Karaj, who's joining us shortly, just having a few internet connectivity issues, but I thought I'd start it off um, and just allow our panelists to introduce themselves. We have James from Manor, Raya from School of Humanity, and Taras from Dawn. Um, so maybe, James, you want to start us off, just tell us about your background and a little bit about Manor as well. Sure, very happy to. Uh, so hi, everyone. Great to be with you. And thank you so much, Zara, for inviting us as well. Uh, so I'm James. I'm co-founder and CEO of a company called Manor. Our mission is to create a world where everyone can make a living by sharing their passion. Uh, we've created a way for people to start their knowledge business in a matter of two minutes, uh, with people all the way from people like managing directors, YouTube content operations, uh, CEO of Google Central America, all these types of people, all the way to purposeful influencers on TikTok and Instagram with 400,000 all the way to 4 million followers, um, offering any of their knowledge, they offer one-to-one live sessions, one-to-many live streams, sell digital content, all those types of things uh, in one box. Um, so my background, I grew up all my life in Hong Kong until I was 16 years old, uh, rejected all university offers, became a pro-democracy student leader in Hong Kong, uh, and then uh, started a youth charity in Hong Kong after that, then sold out completely and uh, became a McKinsey consultant for a few years. Uh, did that, went back into the youth charity sector uh, and became a head of business development at a youth employment charity called Generation that trains students into university uh, and then trained them at risk of people into jobs as well, which I really love. Um, I went from there to join SoftBank Vision Fund around two and a half years ago. Uh, at SoftBank, my role was mainly to turn around failing companies. Uh, so the two big ones I worked on were WeWork and Arm. Uh, we worked, <laughs> obviously, during the very challenging IPO period. And I'm glad, uh, Taras, you're, you're in a WeWork today as well, which is awesome. Um, and uh, did that and also worked very closely with Arm, uh, spinning out their IoT division. It's part of a much larger team in SoftBank as well. Um, so yeah, that's my background. Started uh, Mana around 10 months ago, and here we are. So great to meet you all. Amazing. So excited to dive deeper into what Mana's doing now. So it's so many exciting things. Taras, maybe you want to go next? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everyone. Really good to see you and meet you all. Um, yeah, I'm Taras. Um, actually, my, my background is, uh, is with venture capital, uh, similar to James. So my career started in a VC firm called Holland Equity Ventures, and we invested specifically into HR and education technology. So in tech, tech is an industry that I personally have, have been in love with kind of for the last like 10 or 15 years. And, um, uh, I was a partner in this fund. We made 10 investments, actually managed to exit um, five of them, delivered very good returns to our shareholders. So ed tech can make money for uh, lots of people and for all stakeholders involved. Uh, now, um, for five years after this, I was chief operating officer of a company called Sweatpoint, so a completely different industry, health and fitness. Uh, we scaled this from zero to 50 million users, became one of the fastest growing fitness apps in the world. Um, grew the team to like 70 employees and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then last, what was it, like 15 or 16 months, um, been building Dorm. And Dorm is uh, a personal promotes a community where the world's top founders help the next generation of entrepreneurs uh, to launch their ideas and uh, passion projects. So this is what we do. And yeah, excited for the discussion. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Taras. Um, and finally, Raya, if you want to introduce yourself before I hand over back to our fantastic host, host Kurosh. Sure. Thank you, Zara. 
Um, so yeah, hi everyone. I'm Raya. I am the founder and CEO of an organization called School of Humanity. Uh, as the name suggests, we're essentially creating a new type of high school for the world, um, one where uh, learners develop the competencies they need to thrive and contribute to humanity, but in a completely interdisciplinary, project-based way. So at School of Humanity, you develop your skills by solving local and global challenges. Uh, we're working on a four-year high school model, but also um, summer school and after-school programs. Um, our mission really is all about reinventing education and particularly reinventing high school education in a way that better prepares young minds um, for the needs uh, of today's world. Uh, a little bit about me personally, uh, I came into this space very much out of my own frustrations uh, with traditional education. I um, was lucky to be a young, uh, a young founder. I was part of the family team of the first um, science festival here in Dubai. I also um, have been um, working with many startups in, in the United States. For me, I found that you know the more time I spend working on startups while at university, and the more time I actually spend at university, the mismatch became painfully uh, obvious to me. Uh, so I you know, started my last company straight out of um, college, and uh, the transition to School of Humanity really came out of a realization that uh, simply tweaking the existing system and simply working on ed tech within the system wasn't enough. We needed to create a new alternative system of education. Reimagining pedagogy and the entire learning experience. So, looking forward to going deeper into that. Hey, um, I'm sorry for being late. Uh, thank you all for being here. My name is Kurosh. I am the founder of Meet Waves, a community management platform, and I was asked by Zara and the adventure team to host this panel because before I went into community, I was very much obsessed with edtech. So wrote a few papers, did a ton of research, and said, I'm really excited to speak to all of you. I wanted to start this off by doing a little bit of a deeper intro. Very often, whenever I speak to other ethnic founders, we just say that, hey, we just want to do better education. But I'd love to know the exact problem that you found first that you want to solve. It would be great if we could start with Dayo and then go on to Paras and then Jay. Is that okay? Sure. Um... So for me, I feel like there's multiple layers of issues in the education space. There's so many, and each of us here probably focuses on a different aspect of it. Uh, for us specifically, we felt like there were three dimensions of issues in the high school education space that we were focusing on. Um, first of all, most learners in, in high school today hate school. And we have data, you know, there was a recent study from uh, Yale that 75% of students in the United States alone claim hating school. Uh, on top of that, we know that we're not learning what we need to know in schools. Um, another study shows that, you know, we forget up to 84% of the information we memorize in high school because we just never use it. And you combine that with the growing skills gap where there's increasing widening, you know, gap between the skills that the workforce needs and the skills our graduates are being equipped yet, which is costing, you know, the, the world trillions of dollars. So you have issues with how we're learning things, it's really disengaging and what we're learning, which is really irrelevant. And then the third layer of issue we saw specifically in terms of the market is there's so many online schools and literally every school during COVID did this that take the same old school curriculum, the same pedagogy and simply move it online, right? And that in itself is not enough. We felt like there needed to be uh, a, a movement of reimagining the pedagogy and the education model as well. So. Globally, we're seeing the rise of these really progressive schools, schools that have completely redesigned the learning experience, created schools with 
no curriculum, no classrooms, really rethinking things, but they're not digitized and designed to be scalable. So we felt like there was this gap for online schools that were also progressive, which was a problem and an opportunity where we feel like, felt like we needed to address. So that gives an overview of the problem that my team and I are focusing on. Great. Uh, James? Sure, of course. Um, so in our minds, we think education should be three things. It needs to be accessible, reflective of diverse pathways, um, and lifelong. And so when we look at this in terms of accessibility, um, we found that there's a ton of incredible, valuable knowledge from super interesting people, uh, but they were not sharing it. They found it really hard to build a course, it takes like 500 hours plus to build a course. Uh, they found it very hard to become some Instagram, TikTok celebrity because it's not in their personality to do so. Um, and so it's very hard for them to really distribute that knowledge meaningfully uh, without investing a huge amount of effort for a return. Many of these are super busy people as well. Uh, and so what ends up happening is that a lot of this uh, information is locked up in lead networks. Um, and even when courses are built and so on and, and, and in accessible formats, uh, often they're deeply expensive, right? whether it's traditional university institutions or today uh, all the hyper on cohort-based courses, it's still extremely expensive for people to access. Um, and so in my mind, you know, we need to change this and democratize access to a large number of people and give an incentive for people with valuable knowledge to start sharing. The second one we say reflective diverse pathways uh, is that when we look at society in general, uh, there are now more diverse ways to succeed than ever before, right? Uh, it used to be maybe professional industries like be a lawyer, be a banker, stuff like that. Uh, but now you could be a grower of bonsai trees and make a million a year by <laughs> making live streams online. And for real, there's a company called Bonsai Mirai that literally does this. Uh, you know, there are people who are literally making videos for a living, and that's it. Uh, credentials in reality, in terms of being able to make a living, are becoming less and less uh, the key element. And yes, at the same time, our education system was built around the 20th century. It's deeply industrialized. It talks about uh, building, you know, great credentials up front and then hoping that'll give you economic returns over time. Uh, and so in order to be reflective of diverse pathways, you have to show people how are the ways you can make money over time, uh, how are the ways you can be successful and live a fulfilling life over time beyond the money, uh, and be able to show that, uh, you know, in terms of successful cases. And the third final thing is that it has to be lifelong, in that the world is changing at such a massive pace that there's no way people learning only in the first 20 years of their life can possibly prepare for what's happening in the next 60. Um, so when we looked at all this, we felt that the intersection of all that was what we were trying to do at Hana and what many other companies are uh, tackling in the same space, which is essentially that you need to give a simple way for people valuable knowledge to share it, to start the knowledge business in two minutes. Um, and at the same time, build an interaction method that's much closer to social platforms than they are to formal institutions, so that it's less about building credentials, but more about constant engagement and being able to see your idols and people be able to turn themselves into a business doing incredibly creative and interesting things. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's our, our vision for the future in terms of uh, what education is now. Thanks. Over to you, Taras. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, I second everything, every single word that uh, Jamie said, and uh, all of the things you mentioned, I've mentioned, are also deeply ingrained into our philosophy of dorm. Uh, one thing I just wanted to add to this um, talk is that um, I personally feel that the world is kind of obsessed with content and so many other education platforms that are focusing too much on educating through content. And I personally believe that A, content is available, content is available in abundance in the world. Like you can basically Google everything and there are plenty of YouTube videos available on any given topic. You don't need to pay for them. You don't need to... to Got your way to find them. And second, people don't learn through content in the first place. 
Um, and this is why we're at Dorma very much focusing on other means of education through things like one-on-one mentorship or learning in small groups through uh, practical um, learning through practical things and uh, simulations. So yeah, this is what we do. Okay, very cool. Thanks for all of your answers. Um, I have a question specifically for Taras. So you have a pretty interesting incentive scheme for your mentors. Can you tell us a little bit more about it so then I can ask my question with a bit of background knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way we work with mentors is um, we, we deeply believe in incentive-based um, uh, that, that, that educators can be incentivized through outcomes not by kind of getting paid an hourly wage or anything like this. And this is why when we pair up our mentors with um, kind of young founders or students that we have on our platform, uh, our mentors get a small portion of equity uh, in the business or project that they are helping to build. Uh, and this helps to align incentives of the mentor with the incentives of the student. And this delivers much better kind of, um, learning outcomes uh, for the student. Okay. How do you plan to keep this safe in the future with not only the ridiculous rate of failure in startups, but also Dorm is a relatively new program. I assume most of the people that apply already know a lot about startups, and those are the people you kind of want. As you grow and you get out to the major population, how do you want to keep it safe for your mentors and only get superstars on board? Because like yeah. a succeeding startup is not just a smart person, but also someone who's okay with being sad. A lot of the times, as I know. Yeah. No, absolutely. Actually, interestingly, this um, incentive model is more attractive to the types of mentors that we're targeting versus just being paid cash up front. And we've actually A-B tested this. When we uh, pitched to 50 different people a uh, incentive-based model versus just, okay, we pay you, you know, let's say, 150 or 200 pounds per hour for your time. And this was the specific audience of mentors that we are targeting, which is you know successful entrepreneurs, founders, um, people who have you know built stuff before. This incentive-based model is actually much more attractive because what they're used to is this um, you know um, outcomes um, curve that is uh, normal in the VC industry in the startup world. So they're used to this; it's more familiar to them. They're more attractive. Um, and you know, we found that this is just like a better way to incentivize mentors versus uh, cash payment. Okay, very interesting. Uh, James, imagine I was a creator on Mana and I create a course with twenty different videos. How would you give me an incentive to keep learners on board rather than just me getting that payment as soon as someone buys it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think I'll teach you these two things. Um, one is to create as much diverse methods of monetization as possible in one box and simplify your life uh, as much as we can. Uh, and so when you look at you know uh, creators on a platform, often they are people who are already tremendously successful, uh, you know, like a CEO of Google Central America, for example, uh, and they don't have much time to really keep doing this. Right? Like it's, it's not like a full time job and so on. Uh, and so for them, it's like you know we could do this in two minutes. Right? And sometimes we just walk it over a video call and it, the genius happens. Um, and so. Uh, when you look at diverse monetization, all one box, uh, make your life super simple. Uh, you know, it creates a lot of incentives to stay. And of course, the second piece, uh, what we're doing right now is the building out the discoverability, uh, almost similar to a social platform, uh, that brings you more and more of that audience and keeps them captive, uh, that goes beyond just being paying customers, but also building community around them and so on. Uh, and so it's super important for us to be able to build, uh, good engagement, 
uh, almost similar to how social media would think about engagement, uh, more than simply saying that we are a SaaS tool providing you know, some basic level services. Uh, so yeah, that, that's what we think about. Okay, thank you. Uh, a question for Raya. So James and Taras both sell to the learners, whereas you, I assume you sell to the parents, unless there's a high school kid with $10,000 lying around, right? <laughs> um, what are their pain points for traditional education? They're kind of a generation above us. So what problems are they facing? Yeah, so first of all, we one of the things that we decided to do from the get-go is we have all B2C, B2B, and B2G channels that we're exploring at the moment. So uh, we do have parents who pay tuition to the programs, but we also work with foundations or organizations that contract us to run our programs for their schools and their existing students. And we're working with governments uh, to kind of align with this global trend of governments contracting uh, private institutes around the public system, which is an interesting parallel to the space industry. So we're kind of you know, active across all threes. But for the parents, um, what we're seeing is that there's a persona of what we call our early adopter parents, who are, you know, usually there are really progressive parents, sometimes they're digital nomads, they're parents who are kind of like-minded to the panel that we have here. They come from tech backgrounds, entrepreneurial backgrounds, they recognize that credentials are becoming increasingly less important and that the world is just changing so quickly and they want a different kind of education for the child. Most of the time, these parents also want an accredited alternative, right? They don't want to just unschool completely or move into a school that's so progressive that would close off um, further higher education offerings for their child. And uh, more often than not, they... Um, just want something that's really different to the status quo. And these parents are out there. You know, we've had, we, we speak to a lot of them. A lot of them come to us. And specifically, that's kind of like the pain point that they face. Um, one of the things we believe is that new models of education, especially high school education like ours, starts off with these early adopter parents in the short term. But once we have our graduating class who go on to do amazing things, whether it's going to university or starting their own companies, we think that then that becomes the trajectory towards becoming a mainstream model of education. Okay. So if Taras and James both wanted to do something very crazy with their educational models tomorrow, they could do that. But with you, there's a little bit of more risk involved because the parents are paying for it. So have you ever reached any limits where you drifted too far away from the traditional mm -hmm. model where parents were just like, okay, no? Good question. So for us, it's interesting because it's relative, right? What is too much for your traditionally minded parents might be perfectly fine for a progressive parent, right? So for some parents, everything we do right now would be too much, right? Many families are still looking for an education that is subject-based, it gives them a report card at the end, it gets them into guaranteed you know, traditional universities. For those parent families, we are very extreme, <laughs> right? For uh, progressive families, I think as long as we can show the accreditation and trajectory towards higher education, we're good. Um, one of the things we do notice we have to do from the get-go is there's a systems thinking approach that we have to adopt with our design. Like we can't just design this in a silo, we're regularly partnering with universities to make sure we're aligning with admission standards, we're regularly working with governments to make sure we're aligning with regulatory standards. Uh, we're regularly meeting with parents, focus groups. Uh, so there's all these different components in this ecosystem, rather, that we have to build around us because we can't just build a startup um, without that ecosystem, especially a school as a startup. Okay. Okay, I understand. Um, so to 
move on to actually stay on that topic. James sent in a question, which was, how will traditional education know institutions like universities change in response to amazing companies like yours? Now, one of the clients of my company is a university. And two years ago, they had classes with 350 people. Nowadays, with the same exact model on Zoom, they can have 550 people, which means that no change needed at all. The incentive for them is even greater to not change at all because they keep on getting sued. What do you think needs to happen? And this is a question to all of you. What do you think needs to happen for an educational institution to actually want to change or even have to change? It would be great if we could start with Tara. Um, you know, the most radical idea I have is um, payment model needs to change. Um, basically, I think this is one of the biggest problems that uh, exist in the society that, especially in the UK, uh, actually most students, they don't even understand that they're paying for university. It's like it goes as a percentage of their future salary, so they don't really think about it. It's not like a um, conscious decision that they make to spend, let's say, 20K or whatever is the amount. Um, so I think that's a problem. Um, just to give you an interesting illustration, my, my, my friend is, is an ad tech founder um, and he runs like one of the largest boot camps um, uh, for uh, teaching people digital marketing and uh, tech um, uh, helps people getting into tech. Uh, and typically they have this model where students pay uh, 2K upfront and then they kind of start their course. It's typically, you know, three to four months and so on and so forth. Uh, and their NPS is incredibly high, like 70 uh, out of 100, which is great for, for an education technology experience. Um, and some time ago, uh, instead of doing this upfront payment, uh, they tested a subscription model where students had to pay, um, I think it was like 250 uh, pounds um, every month. Uh, for the duration of the program. And interestingly, first of all, their NPS dropped quite substantially to 60 or I think 50 or something. And the reason for this is because every month people were making a conscious decision. Do they want to continue spending um, money on this program or not? And they were reevaluating it in their head while in the previous model, they'd already made it once and they were like, okay, with everything that happens because now they had to justify in their head paying 2K. Um, so I think this is a very interesting experiment that shows that, you know, a different payment model creates like a different critical perspective in the minds of students. And I think if we were to pay for university on a monthly basis and you could cancel any time, universities would have a massive incentive to improve their programs. Okay. That's an interesting idea. I also like how it connects with business models, same way that I really find Dorn's business model interesting. But what about you, James and Ryan? Yeah, first of all, I love Taras's uh, you know answer. That is awesome, um, and uh, I do believe that the payment model is at the core of this. Uh, and I think there's sort of two aspects uh, in my head. Um, the first, in terms of the payment model, a slightly different perspective uh, to Taras of that. In that, you know, in my view, it's more about how do you democratize access as, as much as possible. And there's been a lot of talk about income sharing agreements and all different things where uh, it creates more outcome based. Uh, you know, sharing of the costs and also makes it more accessible to individuals. Um, but one model that I found tremendously interesting uh, is actually a friend of mine in Australia who's uh, recently started a company called Forte. Um, and basically what they do is they partner with governments to pay for education uh, with a portion of your future taxable income. Uh, so instead of paying for your income, 
They take a percentage of the taxes you pay in the future. Uh, they bundle many different students together. So that effectively treats it like a financial instrument that de-risks itself uh, through the, the variety of backgrounds. Um, and as a result, um, the student never has to pay for anything. The employers and the schools don't have, ever have to pay for anything. And the governments te technically haven't paid anything if they manage to improve the incomes of these students over time. Right. So if they manage to partner institutions that incentivize them to build degrees that um, actually improve their economic outcomes over time, the government effectively has paid nothing. And so it's an incredibly interesting uh, economic model that balances all the interests of the stakeholders and effectively creates free education for all. Uh, it obviously takes huge amounts of public-private sector partnership and innovation to make it happen. Uh, but I found that fascinating. Uh, and so I, I definitely agree with Tyrus' uh, approach of saying there, there's a lot of things to change in the payment model. Uh, the second piece is more an observation of how I think uh, the system is going to evolve. Uh, and that I think there's probably not a lot of incentive for the most elite institutions to change. Uh, I do think there will always be some demand of extremely prestigious credentials that are also built around elite networks, right? So like Harvard, Oxford, so on and so forth. Uh, there will always be parents who want to send people there. They will always have demand for employers. It, it's going to happen. But I do think that you're going to have this bifurcation of essentially having these top universities that re remain, like retain their cash and also be really good research institutions with lots of uh, contributions to the world. And then on the other end, you have these content farm type universities that are more like online universities producing huge amounts of commercial content, uh, who will become more and more like privately funded tech companies instead of uh, purely uh, university style institutions. But it's the midsection that's going to have a massive crisis. Right? So you neither have the elite credentials, nor do you have the content farm uh, strategy or, or the nimbleness to move in that direction. Uh, and you're kind of stuck in between every massive campuses that you can't pay off and your, your student numbers are dropping. You're kind of going, what am I going to do? Uh, it's that group that I think will need to figure out like which side do you uh, do you go, or perhaps they will end up dying off, uh, and we will see universities become a much more specialized tool. Where we say for some particular things, where you need a credential for uh, the trustworthiness of employers, where there's a high demand for research, thinking particularly in STEM, particularly in professional degrees like law, so forth, we will retain these institutions for that purpose. But that for the vast majority of many other things. Whether it's even humanities or creative degrees and so on and so forth, we will move away from degrees as the default and instead go to a much more uh, diverse method of education uh, that we talked about earlier, whether it's creative economy based or whether it's uh, in other formats. Uh, so yeah, that, that's sort of my, my observation, I think, of where we might go. With that. But as usual, I may be completely wrong and in 20 years we'll be laughing at this video. So here we are. <laughs> okay. Um, before we go on to Raya, I want to ask James for a little bit of clarification. So. Speaking about the certificates, let's assume there are elite universities where you pay a hundred thousand pounds and then the certificate is worth two hundred thousand pounds. Then there are good at, uh, institutions where the certificate that costs a hundred thousand pounds is a hundred thousand pounds. You're speaking about those universities where the price is the same as the elite universities, but students will recognize that the credential is just not worth as much as they're paying compared to everyone else, right? Uh, yes, um, I, I struggle to fully economically okay. price it out, uh, but sure. Yeah. Uh, it's effectively the difference between uh, the Russell Group universities versus the, the tier below the Russell Group uh, that are going, hey, you know, my, my students are paying just as much as the Russell Group, but they're not getting as much value in terms of uh, employer job outcomes or things. And they often have a very binary type of discussion where it's like, should we become more utilitarian? As in, we will, we will guarantee jobs for our students and make sure job outcomes and then internally, the academics are going, no, we should be valuing like academic value and humanities and things that are actually worthwhile educating um, because their identities are so split and the two economic models are most likely to work 
are no longer fitting uh, what they are. Uh, so yes, uh, broadly, I, I agree with this. Okay, so Raya, what about high school? That's really interesting compared to university. Yeah, yeah. So I like to think about what is the thing that hinders the most change and innovation in the high school space. I actually think, uh, you know, one of it, one component of it is parent mindsets, but the bigger part is regulations and laws. So the model of education, for example, that we designed at School of Humanity, that's interdisciplinary, project-based, we focus on skill credentials rather than content-based credentials, portfolio-based transcripts, all that, you know, future, aligned with the future of education is actually illegal in most countries. So there are local regulations in most places that prohibit radical change, and to some extent for good reason, but they haven't kept up with the pace of change globally. So uh, many organizations like ours have to try to find loopholes uh, around those around those legalities, which is why I think the flip of that is one of the things that I think will contribute to the most impact and change is when those laws change. Um, so for example, in the Netherlands, they have, an entire body of schools that they call special schools. These are schools with a very unique ethos, unique pedagogical approach. Uh, more often than not, they're really progressive schools. And they actually created a different accreditation set of standards for those schools, recognizing that you can't analyze them the same way you would analyze a traditional school that does the A-levels or IB, right? So that's kind of the direction I think that we need to go globally to see new models of high, high school education emerge. I also think that what's going to incentivize the market greatly is really the rise of these alternatives uh, globally. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the quote from Buckminster Fuller that says you can't change things by fighting existing reality. You have to create a new model that makes the old one obsolete. And to use an example from the higher education space, um, in London, uh, earlier this year, the London Interdisciplinary School opened up its doors. It's actually a university with a completely interdisciplinary curriculum. They're accredited and authorized by the UK government to provide bachelor's degrees. Uh, and the really cool thing about them is you don't pick a major. It's, it's completely interdisciplinary. You learn by solving local and global challenges. And I think as you see more of these alternatives, um, as they become more mainstream, as, as people start going to them and hearing stor stories and sharing those stories with you know their peers and uh, other families, you, you start to realize you have options and that there isn't just one way of learning. There isn't just one way of getting a certificate or a diploma. There are other ways out there. And I think that's ultimately the thing that's going to incentivize change because you know, other universities are going to see that they're losing students to these progressive schools. And hopefully that um, puts pressure on them to innovate themselves. Okay. I have one final question before we can move on to the Q&A section. We have a few really interesting questions. So by the end of when I was done with my degree, I remember being extremely angry at my university. And then I realized why. Because before I joined, I read the marketing stuff that says we will prepare you for your job. When I came out of university, I obviously wasn't prepared for a job. So I want to speak about expectation management. How do you set expectations for your for each of the companies that you uh, that you're building right now? Um, the reason why I'm saying this is because I believe I would be far less mad at my university if they told me that instead of preparing you for a job. We will give you a certificate that will give you an entry into interviews, into jobs, who will then prepare you for the bigger job. So, Taras, how do you make sure that people don't expect too much? Mm, I'm not sure it's about expectations management. It's more about actually delivering on those expectations that you've created. So, for us, the way to do it is by just having one North Star metric that we're focusing on as an organization. And for us, this North Star metric 
uh, his outcomes as measured by revenue that our students make through their passion projects. So our objective is, uh, objective is to get everyone to make uh, their first um, thousand pounds in revenue in their first month after joining us. Um, and we measure what's the percentage of people that we help to that. Hence, we can we can promise that because that's the only thing we care about. Okay, that's that is very extreme. I wow, thousand pounds in the first month, great, nice. Uh, so, what about you, James? Yeah, we have a, a almost polar opposite approach to what Tara has mentioned, which I find fascinating because we're we're so similar in terms of uh, the way we we want to see at the end as well. Um, our view is move away from credentials, move away from the idea of like deeply measurable outcomes for education, where you kind of go get a job, you know, or, 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 or you know, here's a direct outcome. Um, we instead really focus on social style engagement, right? So uh, when you go online uh, and the things that you can learn, uh, yes, on one end, you have like career driven stuff, like you're trying to get a job. Um, and also what you see is uh, th those outcomes kind of veer away from what people originally thought they would have, they would have, right? So some people are asking someone about, um, you know, how to get into Google. And then in the end, midway through that, they recognize, oh, wow, this person's so inspiring. There's actually some other thing that I wanted to do. Uh, and they end up finding their path that way. Right? So it's it's much more qualitative that way. Um, but also, of course, uh, you can learn how to grow a tree. Right? You can learn how to grow an avocado plant in your house, so and so forth. Um, there are very fascinating, interesting, creative aspects uh, of what you could do. And so for us, uh, it's really about taking away the credential-based outcome expectations, uh, as you said, in terms of management. And instead of going, uh, you know, this is the place where you get your daily feed of inspiration uh, and you keep being able to uh, enjoy life and learn from inspiring people on all kinds of different things. Um, you know, whether there is a, a North Star outcome uh, out of that, we're not 100% sure, uh, but uh, we will see as we explore more in the next few years. James, I absolutely admire this approach. Um, the only issue is what Kourash mentioned in the beginning. It's like very hard to market your product with this approach because what people care about is like results uh, and outcomes. Um, and the more quantifiable um, or tangible the outcomes of results are that you can demonstrate, the more attractive your product is for students. So it's very challenging what you're doing. 100% agree. Um, and I think there, it, it then varies in the two approaches uh, that we talked about earlier where you know, um, are you selling an alternative to the MBA or are you selling an alternative to TikTok? Uh, and what if that TikTok is also helping you to learn? Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it could go, they're very binary outcomes for our company. That's what I would say. <laughs> yeah, it's either massive success or complete failure, uh, which we will find out soon. So, yeah, but, um, in both of your cases, it makes perfect sense for me. So when Tara said that a thousand pounds in the first month is the thing that we want to get to, I was immediately bought in. But the difference is when I use dorm, I am giving away 5% of the company that I'm building. So this is going to be a huge thing in my life. Whereas with Mana, if I were to use it, I'm going to buy a course that teaches me something about, let's say, digital marketing. I am not that ridiculously invested as with 5%. Not that it's 5% uh, ridiculous, just that like, Giving away five percent is a huge deal for every founder at some point. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, I think Mana doesn't necessarily has has to be so quantifiable. But what about you, Raya? Especially with parents. I'm sorry, I keep uh, emphasizing on that parent part, but just selling to parents scares me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know what's interesting. We actually surveyed our learners, 
to figure out who makes the decision is it the parents or, or the learner or the child. And 90% of the time, it's the learner making the decision. Uh, we think that for models like ours, actually, which is student-led, you know, you've realized because of how open-ended it is, how project-based it is, it relies success if it depends on having the right kind of learner that's kind of more self-motivated and self-organized. For those learners, it's usually them steering the real for their parents. So that's just something interesting that we've recently <laughs> discovered. Um, so obviously, this is one of those things that keeps me up at night, <laughs> making sure our students get into university. It's like it's the stakes are much higher, right? Like we really have to get this right. And so there are certain outcomes that we can promise. Like we can promise that all of our affiliate university partners will take their admissions really seriously. We're working with a number of universities on guaranteed placement, especially those progressive schools. And we can guarantee that if you graduate from School of Humanity, you will have these set of competencies, mindsets, and behaviors for the workforce, flourish in life. You'll have a portfolio of really robust projects. You'll have... um, experience having interned at various organizations because our learners also learn by doing internships. So there's certain things we can't promise. And then I think there's certain things like any other high school we can't promise, which is that you'll get into every university that you want or you, you know, you'll be successful with the job. So that's where we know we obviously can't can never make any promises. One thing we do is we always for our four-year high school interview the parents as well, mainly for them to understand expectations, not just about the outcome, but the experience as well. So, for example, we don't lecture at students. I, I couldn't agree more with, you know, content isn't how we learn. It's really by social learning, by curiosity-led learning. So, surprisingly, some people don't value that, right? They think that I'm not getting any lectures. I'm not getting any, like, you know, any content. What am I paying for? Whereas, you know, they don't necessarily put the same equal value and facilitated experience. So, yeah, we interview our parents to make sure they know what they're signing up for from an experience perspective and are cautious about the outcomes that we promised to them. Okay, thank you for this. I think we can move on to Q&A. Uh, the very first question here is, Paras, is the dorm accelerator still happening? Which I can answer for you because I applied an hour ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> it's still happening. Uh, you can sign up right now on joindorm.com. But I think an inter- interesting question here is, how have your business models changed since you started? Raya, do you want to go ahead with it and then we go to Taras and Jane? Sure. Honestly, we, we just launched May 2021, so we haven't had enough time to change. Luckily, we, did, we haven't had to so far. Um, I'll just say, like, we... Um, yeah, we're just we're realizing that we have to keep all three B2B, B2B, B2G channels open because different parts of the world, there are different emphasis on those things. But I we hope that as we get more data, um, we'll, we'll maybe focus on one or two of those channels. Power? Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long journey. Uh, so we also started quite recently, as I said, it's, it's only been like a year and a half maybe, but uh, we've evolved quite a, quite a bit as a concept. And, and the reason for this is because, um, as James said, like with our businesses, we're aiming for hyperscale. We, like it's, um, as, as they call it, um, in VC, billion of us. And hence, if you're aiming for hyperscale, you need to keep, you need to always be looking for not just like the local maxima in the business, but for like the business model and the product that gives you maximum upside. And so the, the product that we initially launched, we realized that yes, it's working, we can make money, maybe we can make a company that is making, let's say $10 million, $20 million in revenue, 
but it hardly can be like a billion dollar company. So we started looking for an alternative business model and then we've experimented with a few different approaches until we found something that we feel has this potential to become a multi-billion dollar business. Now, uh, this was our approach. Um, and actually, I would recommend this approach for all founders. Don't fall in love with your original idea. Keep experimenting until you find something that is truly exceptional and has unlimited upside. Uh, now, more specifically in terms of how we evolved as a company. So um, we started off, um, again, with this founding thesis that content is available on, in abundance and we shouldn't make more content as a company. So what we started doing is we started by, uh, by creating an app that curates and aggregates, uh, aggregates and curates content into learning paths for people. So let's say you want to uh, launch your own uh, YouTube show and then we'll, we'll uh, curate the best available um, uh, videos from the internet on specifically how to do this. But what we very quickly realized is that you know, people don't learn from content in the first place. It's interesting, it's entertaining, it's nice, but it's, it doesn't really help people launch their passion projects. Uh, and then we've uh, pivoted into something um, different, which was a uh, marketplace, a pure marketplace model where we would connect people with mentors who can actually help them um, achieve uh, those things, or, uh, those dreams that, that they have. Uh, and we kind of started off as like this pure marketplace where we have you know, learners on one side and we have mentors on the other side and we match them. Uh, we had this interesting incentives model. However, after um, you know a couple of months doing this and uh, having you know a few uh, dozens of students going through programs with their mentors, we realized that okay, just mentorship is also not enough. It has to be more than this. And we started adding other elements into the product. We started building like a centralized infrastructure to support that mentorship. And we've started adding elements of community. We've started adding a more structured curriculum-based experience, and we started. Uh, adding like resources and tools that both students and mentors can use uh, on their learning journey and, and have built this kind of more holistic product that still has this marketplace, uh, mentorship marketplace element, but also has these centralized tools um, uh, on top of it that I described. So it's really been an evolution uh, and I'm pretty sure we will evolve even more as a company in the next uh, coming kind of months and years. Um, and as I said, I personally believe this is the best approach. Okay. Towers, I love you so much. Uh, we need to talk after it. But I just realized we're, you know, our, our journeys are incredibly similar. Um, and so, um, and I'm much more in the, in the same camp as Raya right now. Um, you know, we launched our first product about five months ago. Uh, and so we're, we're still very early. Um, our initial business model is to take a transaction fee off uh, everything that's being sold in the platform. Right. So whether it's one to one sessions, one to many live streams, digital content, and so on and so forth. Um, our upcoming strategy as we become more of a mobile consumer social marketplace, um, is to blend in a lot of the traditional business models that you see in social media apps, uh, but with a slightly different request. Right? So, um, where we do release advertising, uh, instead of just paying our, uh, you know, creators and the platform itself, it also pays the consumer in the form of a token that you can redistribute into spending on content. Right. So. It creates a disposable form of, uh, uh, like almost extra disposable income that you could spend, uh, on the, uh, on the rest of the content of the platform. Uh, similarly, we are, um, once we have a little bit of scale in consumer social, hopefully we'll see what happens in the next few months. Um, we will start, uh, a, a sort of, um, B2B, but plug in 
uh, expert as a service for companies as well. So what we found is that there's a lot of companies who um, not only want to provide business support, technical support, but actually want to help their clients do better. So if you think about HubSpot, for example, um, you know, when you think about support, you often think about, oh, the, the app is broken, broken, so I need to talk to someone to help me fix it. Um, but actually, the most common question that HubSpot users are thinking about is not that. It's how do I improve my marketing ROI? And that's a much more high-level, deeper question. Uh, and what we found is that there's a ton of experts who have that expertise. How can we plug that in as a service for lots of different, whether it's SaaS companies or uh, even consulting companies and so on, as a way to help their clients succeed, right? Uh, and so there, there are lots of different business models um, as possibilities for us as we, as we scale the consumer social element. Um, our approach is, literally, as Tara described, basically experiment, experiment, experiment until we find something uh, that works out. Uh, but right now, it's uh, simple. We call it the OnlyFans for Brains model, and, uh, and that's what we're doing. Okay, OnlyFans for Brains. I like that. Um, there's one other question here that says, if you could change one thing about education worldwide, what it, would it be? And I think more fun way to ask this is, what is one thing about traditional education that really annoys you, that just really, really makes you angry? Um, we can start with James, or I can give you an example of myself first if you need some time to think about something that makes you really mad. Um, I'm still mad about this thing that my university told me that they're going to prepare me for a job. Honestly, I'm still really, really, really angry. And especially finance courses that teach me how the financial markets work. And at the end of the course, people are like, no, but that's actually not the way it is. The stock market doesn't work in this traditional way. Yeah, just um, me not being able to apply really much from my course, but I was also a business student. Um, so yeah, let's start with James, then Ryan, and then Taras as an ending. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I want to get into my angry mode now, just to rant more. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I think it's basically, they focus too much on the course and too little on the community. And it's always been really weird to me. Because when you think about the value of university, um, almost all the value is concentrated in the selection. <laughs> like, there's actually very little value for your long-term life after that, right? Uh, it, it's that they selected amazing people around the world to join and be together. And then for some reason, everything the university itself actually does is to put you in a classroom where people don't talk to each other, uh, to do quizzes online, uh, and then look at the answers together with a TA who is really bored and is paid terribly uh, and really doesn't want to be there, right? Uh, and so there's this focus on the courses and the credits, uh, and they put you in a room to focus on that. But then the university actually doesn't facilitate the communities. Uh, it's the students who try their best to try student societies and all kind of stuff to, to try to make it up. Uh, but it still doesn't work very well. Um, and so when I look at that, I'm like, you know, uh, if someone were to build a university again, uh, it would probably look much more decentralized. There should be tons of different interesting courses that you can pick and choose and bundle and do what you want. Uh, but focus a lot on building community because that, that's where uh, having so many interesting, well-selected people uh, together uh, is really about. Uh, so yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah, that's exactly what we do at uh, my startup, by the way. And we're just testing it out now. And the first run it was a trial, and I thought it went terribly, but the students loved it, which just reminded me of how bad it is right now. Um, but yeah, what about you, Ryan? I think for me, it's just how stressful learning is in informal education. And I remember this really pissed me off in university in particular. It's just the ridiculous workloads, like you're in classes until 5 p.m. and then you're studying until 10, 11, right? And what really angers me is those same universities will slap on like free counseling or mindfulness on top of the core system that's so broken and designed 
with poor consideration to well-being and mental health. So um, we see something similar in, in high school, right, with the ridiculous standards and just obsession with these exams that students are told is going to determine success for the rest of their lives, which is not true, which is a lie. Um, so I think for me, yeah, that, that really pisses me off. And I think it, frankly speaking, should be illegal. <laughs> it's unethical and shouldn't be allowed. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we've already touched on two things that are extremely annoying in education, high education as it is now. Number one is like payments slash incentives model. We've discussed that in detail. Second is the lack of focus on outcomes. Uh, it's education for the sake of education or education for the sake of a certificate, which I think is the wrong thing. Now, just to add on this, the third thing that deeply annoys me is how uh, a lot of people zombie walk into education. They basically get into careers that they're not passionate about. Um, they just get into like random courses that don't really spark their interest. And they then keep studying this thing for another you know, four years, then they get into a career in the same field. And then, you know, five years later, they realize they haven't enjoyed like a second of this career or this, this course. Um, and much better way would be for people to only um, go to, to university once they already understand what is that they're interested in, what are they passionate about, and then university should then be able to help them to kind of accelerate their career in this field that they're already passionate about. So this is another thing that deeply annoys me. And thank you for that. Um, so to everyone who's listening and who's thinking about starting a startup that changes the way higher education works, um, it's not just a great pursuit because better education is always great, but also because university is a last hurrah before we have to go out into the world and start our jobs, right? So that should be one of the most fun experiences of our lives, which right now it isn't. So thank you for doing what you do, all three of you. Thank you for being here today and answering my questions. I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>